So now we come to verse 6. And verse 6 develops the second reason that Christ is superior to the angels. Is that they have been commanded to worship Him. And you're like, I don't remember any place in the First Testament where angels were commanded to worship Jesus. Well, there's lots of them. And that's what he's going to begin to unpack. So he first says this, verse 6. Got to go back to Hebrews. But when again he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now immediately now we go back to this question. Wait a minute. Christ is the firstborn? I mean, he was actually born? Well, that kind of defeats the whole son of God. He's always been that, right? And of course, this is the first thing that Jehovah's Witnesses all jump on is that, look, right there, your Bible says, the only begotten Son, birth. The firstborn Son, right? That means Jesus didn't always exist. Well, you got to take him back in the context. Firstborn in the ancient world did not necessarily mean biological birth. Here's an example. Abraham. Who was his biological firstborn son? Ishmael. But who inherited everything from Abraham and continued the line of Christ. Isaac II. Who was Isaac's firstborn? Esau. But who got to continue the line of Christ and inherited everything? Jacob the secondborn. Now, I won't ask you this question, but Jacob had 12 sons. Their firstborn was Reuben. Didn't get the blessings. The second was Simeon. Didn't get the blessings. The third was Levi. Didn't get the blessings. Who got the headship? Judah. Because Jesus comes from Judah. And he became all the kings. David. So here's the reality. Firstborn meant two things. Firstborn meant you got the headship over the entire tribe or family. And two, it meant you got more of an inheritance than everybody else. Not because you were dad's favorite, which you might be when Isaac is trying to give it to Esau, because Esau brings a tasty meat. Um, But the reality is it means you get double inheritance because if you're responsible for taking care of the whole entire tribe and one of your brothers or descendants isn't responsible with things and loses everything, then you have to take care of them, which means you should have some extra inheritance to help out with them. And so what it meant was a lot of times dad could decide to give the firstborn title to some other son because he thinks his firstborn son's a screw-up and he wants to give it to the nextborn. Or it could be that God just loves violating tradition and says, you're not going to give it to your biological firstborn because that's what humans do, and I don't do that. So you're going to give it to your second or your fourth. So you go to the Jehovah's Witness, who totally embraces the First Testament, and you say, look, all these people weren't biologically firstborn. In fact, there were times where the firstborn got adopted. Joseph adopted Jesus as his firstborn son. And so the reality is, Firstborn doesn't really mean biological birth. It just means that you were given the title, the headship. So when the author of Hebrews says that Christ is the firstborn, that's exactly what he means. Jesus gets a double inheritance, heaven and earth. And he gets the headship over all things because he is the Son of God. And so it has nothing to do with biological birth. It has nothing to do with having a beginning. It has everything to do with headship and double inheritance. And so when he brings his firstborn into the world... Meaning this is the first time the world has ever seen his firstborn because today he has spoken through his son. He says this, the angels bow down and worship him. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, 43. Cry out, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge his servant's blood. He will make, take vengeance against his enemies. 
So in your notes, it says this. In the Hebrew, Deuteronomy says this. Rejoice you nations with his people. That's what the, na- the Hebrew says. But then when Hebrews quotes it, it says, Rejoice you heavens along with him and all, all the nations, the sons of God, worship him. You know, like how does the author of Hebrews change these things? Well, what does nations and people have to do with angels and the sons of God? One of the points he's making is in Deuteronomy 32, he's making the argument that everything belongs to God. Okay, and so when he gets to verse 8, he says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided up humankind, he set the boundaries of all the peoples according to the number of the heavenly assembly, the angels. So he says, look, all the nations belong to the angels. Okay, all the nations belong to the angels. He's put the angels over the different nations in Deuteronomy 8. But then he goes on in verse 32, or verse 16 in Deuteronomy. He says, They made him jealous with other gods. They enraged him with abhorrent idols. They sacrificed to demons, not God. To gods they have not known. To new gods who recently come along. Gods your ancestors had not known about. So in verse 8 of chapter 32, Deuteronomy, he says, All the nations belong to the angels. But in verse 16 and 17, he says, But the angels became demons and gods, and they misled all the nations. So then he comes to verse 34, and he says this, or 43, Cry out, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge his servants' blood, and he will take vengeance against his enemies. So saying, all you nations who are under the authority of the angels and been misled by them when they fell, cry out to me, and I will bring everything back under my power again. That's the point that Deuteronomy 32 is making. Okay? But how is he going to bring everything under his power? Because ultimately he's going to make the point that all the angels bow down and worship God. So even though he's given authority to the angels, and they rule over the nations, and that's what we see in Daniel 9 and 10, where Michael comes to Daniel and he says, Look, God heard your prayer 21 days ago. And he answered your prayer 21 days ago. But it took me 21 days to get to you and tell you because the demon, the angel, the prince of Persia has stopped me. And I've been fighting him for 21 days trying to get to you, but it's only because of your prayers that I've been able to break that through. Now, I don't know exactly what that means and nobody knows. But it does mean that your prayers actually make a difference in spiritual warfare. How do prayers make a difference in spiritual warfare? I have no idea. It just does. Just like, how is the Trinity the Trinity? I don't know, it just is. So he says, I finally got to you, but the only reason I was able to get away was because the Michael came in and helped me, and he's fighting the Prince of Persia right now, so I can come to you. But I have to get back because the Prince of Greece is now coming. So the point is, there's this, all this chaos now in heaven and on earth because of the rebellion of the fallen angels and the rebellion of humans. Even though the angels have authority over the earth, but at the same time, in Job chapter 1, you see now all the sons of God, angels, because that's another way of calling angels, and even Satan, and actually in the Hebrew it's called the Satan, the accuser, the adversary, presented them before God, and they gave an answer or an account to him. And in the end of Job says, do you put the Leviathan, which is an image of the devil, on a leash and command him what to do? So in the end, you get this idea that the world is under chaos, But God says, they still ultimately answer to me, and all the angels bow down and worship me. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? Because you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and it says that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And if all the angels bow down to God, and Hebrews has just proven to you that Jesus is the Son of God in heaven and the Son of God, the Davidic throne on earth, then all the angels bow down and worship Him too. So how is Jesus better than the angels? Because Jesus is God and the angels worship God. Therefore, they worship Jesus and Jesus worships nobody. Does that kind of make sense? And so he unpacks that for you. And he goes in the same thing, and he quotes Psalm 97, which continues this idea, um, which becomes kind of obvious now that we're developing the typology. And the last thing we'll come to is Psalm 104. And Psalm 104, it says, um, He makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, what does that do have to do with Jesus again? Jesus, here's the thing. He actually says in the original Hebrew, he makes the winds his messengers and the flaming fire's attendants. But Hebrews quotes that he makes his angels spirits and the ministers of the flaming fire. Now remember, author of Hebrews is quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. But Hebrew, the Psalms, is Hebrew. So there's, there's always going to be a translation problem when you go from one language to the other. So how does this all fit together? Well, you can translate wind as spirit. Because the Hebrew word for wind is ruach. And ruach can mean spirit or wind. So you see ruach translated in Genesis 1-2 when it says the spirit, the ruach of God was hovering over the watery deep. But you also see ruach when it says, and God, in Genesis 8 after the flood, sent a ruach from the east, a wind, to make the waters recede. That's intentional. So you see the spirit wind hovering over the waters, calming them in Genesis creation. But then you see the spirit wind hovering over the waters after the flood to make them go back into peace. And so spirit can be, ruach can be spirit or wind. So when the author of Hebrews takes and says, I'm not going to make it wind, I'm going to make it spirit, that's legitimate. Because they're kind of the same thing. Well, he uses angels. Well, the Hebrew word for angels is just messenger, mashak. Okay, and so an angel is a messenger, and a messenger is a messenger. So those are equivalent. You, those, those are compatible with each other. And then the flaming fire and the flaming fire. So what is he saying here? He's saying this. He's bringing the earth and heaven together again. So when we get to Ezekiel... Later, when you go in the context of Psalm 104, you'll be told in Psalm 104 that God makes the wind and the clouds His chariot. He rides the wind and the clouds. Only divine beings ride the cloud and the winds. So there you go. He makes the winds His messengers, and He makes the fire His servants, because every time they saw the, fire, the chariot of God, it was a pillar of fire for Israel. And then when Elijah came down and they picked up Elijah, it was a flaming fire. So, the, the chariot of God is wind, cloud, and fire. But then when you get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel takes you deeper into the chariot of God. In chapter 1 Ezekiel, Ezekiel says, Behold, I saw the chariot of God, a whirlwind of fire and cloud, and in it were four living creatures, angels. Remember, as you keep going deeper into the Bible, God gives you a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So first you see the chariot of God, and it's just this pillar of fire. Then you see the chariot of God with Elijah, 
And it's actually this moving, looking like chariot. And then you get to Ezekiel, and now you see angels, and you see wheels upon wheels, and you actually see the throne of God sitting on it. So we now know that in the earthly realm, the chariot of God looks like fire, wind, and cloud. It came down on Mount Sinai. But in the heavenly realm, when Ezekiel is taken up, he sees angels in fire. So the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 104, where it says, God makes the wind in the cloud his servant. The author of Hebrews chooses to then translate that from the heavenly perspective and says he makes the angels and the fire his servant. So the Psalm 105 is the earthly image of the chariot, where Hebrews is requoting it with the heavenly image of the chariot. So who rides the chariot in the First Testament? God. But in Hebrews 1 through 4, who is God? The Son of God. So who also rides the chariot of God? The Son of God, Jesus. So who also is His servants? The wind, the cloud, the Spirit, and the angels. That's why context is so important. Because without Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, those seven points, you would not get this connection. So he first starts with those seven points and says, Jesus, this, this, and this, and this. That's the complete way to look at him. Now, let me take you back to the typology of sonship of David. Let me take you back to the typology of the angels. Let me take you back to the typology of the chariot of God. And now that you know these seven things about Jesus, he fulfills all those typologies. And so there's all these strands running through the First Testament, and we've only touched on a few. And now what the author of Hebrews is doing, he's going to take those seven points, and he's going to take all those strands and tie them into Christ. Christ is the chariot rider. Christ is the master of the angels. Christ is the tabernacle. Christ is the pillar of fire. He's the radiance of God. Christ is the Davidic king. He's the only one you were thinking that there's no way any of this is to succeed because it's just failure upon failure upon failure. But at the same time, it's God, and God doesn't fail. Well, here are the promises all coming into fulfillment in Christ. And so without the First Testament, you can't see how amazing Christ is. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants to do. He wants to teach you how to put your Bible together. And so I hope, this is a lot, this is a lot to put together, and we only talk about a few verses. But if anything, even if it doesn't fully make sense, and don't, and don't worry if it does, I mean, I've read this and read it and read it and read it and read it. No one expects you to get it the first time. Nobody expects a child to ride a bike the first time. This is why it's recorded. This is why I've written the notes. But if anything, my hope is, even if it's not fully cemented in, my hope is I've given you a taste, a thirst, a beginning for wanting more. And if that's all I've accomplished, that's more than enough. Because I'm hoping you're beginning to realize that Christianity is way bigger than anything that we could ever imagine. And it gets way bigger than this, too. Because there's all of eternity to explore how Christ fulfills the typologies. So let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you so much for who you are and how awesome you are. Um, I thank you for no human could have ever pulled this all off. Many, many books written over hundreds and hundreds of years by different authors and different continents and different languages and different cultures. And yet they perfectly and beautifully and intricately all flow together and weave together into their consummation in Christ. And I pray that we begin to see that. And I thank you so much for a book like Hebrews that begins to open that world to us. Hopefully, begins to transform 
by the renewing of our mind, the way that we view the Bible, the way that we put it together. We thank you that you only are a God that can kill 50 million birds with one stone, and that's Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is better than all others, and that you have given us the Son, who knows you because he is you. In Jesus' name, amen.